We live in an overtly anti-authoritarian age. We view ourselves as the masters of our own destiny. We live in a radically egalitarian culture where any distinction between people is viewed with suspicion. Hierarchy is to be rejected and all authority is to be questioned. We observe these patterns in every aspect of society from the workplace to the home to the church. In the workplace, managers might hesitate to confront or correct a lazy employee because they have had such a hard time filling entry-level positions, because unskilled and untrained workers feel entitled to more than than the already outrageously high $15 minimum wage. In the home, fathers do not lead or correct for fear of upsetting their wife and children. Sayings like, happy wife, happy life, carry more weight than holy wife, happy life. In churches, pastors are intimidated by the power couple or the large donor, whether they are old or young. The chairman of the deacon board makes the pastor's life a living hell, viewing his job as to hold the fort till Jesus returns and prevent the pastor from making any changes, no matter how benign or biblical. The pastor fears that if he exercises authority, the head deacon will organize a coup and force him out of the church. The small group leader hesitates to correct that really talkative person in the group for fear that they might get mad and stir up a ruckus. So, many people live with this sort of tension, whether in the workplace, the home, or the church. Things are not as they should be, because the leadership and the authority structure is not functioning properly. No doubt, many issues had arisen in the churches which were scattered across the island of Crete where Paul sends Timothy. The problems of absent leadership and unclear lines of authority are not new, but have existed since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. So we can be certain that these churches in Crete, which were admittedly disorganized, were also by definition chaotic. For the purpose of strengthening our local church, today's sermon will consider both the office of elder and deacon. Though deacons are not mentioned in this book, Titus, they are mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 with a clear profile of those qualifications. I didn't read that text from 1 Timothy 3 just now, but I will read it later on. The first point of today's message is to consider point number one, elders. Point number one, elders. This is Titus Chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I command you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So the first sub-point of this point one, shepherds, is the task, the task for elders. The way this task is defined, the way the job of a pastor or an elder is defined is by defining the terms. And the terms are three. Three terms are used in the New Testament to describe this office. These three terms function as a basic job description for the office. These terms are elder, bishop or overseer, same word, and then shepherd or pastor, same word. So first, an elder. When you see the word elder mentioned in your Bible, it's it's carrying over an idea that already existed in the land of Israel. An elder was a, a leader in the city. It was an older man. These older men would often sit at the city gates and help decide difficult cases and difficult matters of, of um, law or contention. The word elder points to being old. (laughs) Insert joke there. Um, 
old, older having wisdom and seniority and, and not being brand new. This is why the, the Bible says that an elder must not be a novice, not a new convert. Now, that would raise the natural question, Andy, you're not old. How are you an elder? Well, a man can be old and be a new Christian and so be spiritually young, or a young man can be very old in the faith. There is, the, the, the number thing is largely irrelevant. The issue is, where are you in terms of your faith? Now, this is not a time to brag or anything of that sort, but I was saved as a small child. I wasn't saved yesterday. Being raised in a pastor's home, that was vital to this instruction. There was much training that goes into preparation and um, training for ministry. But this first subpoint, that of elder, is someone who is on the older side, someone who is wiser, has some gray hair, some gray in their beard. If they might not have it in their hair, they at least have it on their soul. They're an old soul. They're sober-minded. They're serious. The second word is the word bishop or overseer. The word bishop, it comes from the word episkopos. You might have seen a a church on your way here that said something Episcopalian church. Good Shepherd Episcopalian, St. George's Episcopalian, Calvary Episcopal Church. Episcopal, episkopos, is the word bishop or overseer. Oftentimes, in other denominations, they break down the the organization so that a bishop is different from a pastor. So in their systems, you might have the Bishop of New York, like in the Roman Catholic Church or in Anglicanism. What does the Bishop of New York do? Well, the Bishop of New York oversees all the churches of New York. Now, we believe that these three terms are used synonymously to refer to the same office, but they describe different elements of the task and elements of the job description. So if the first one, elder, refers to a level of wisdom and sobriety and seniority, the second, the word bishop, refers to this reality of responsibility and oversight. Can you manage things? Can you take care of stuff? If an elder cannot look after his own house, how can he look after the house of God? He must have some level of administrative skill. That's the second, bishop or overseer. The third is shepherd or pastor. These two words refer to the same thing. They're interchangeable. A shepherd is a shepherd of sheep or goats or other animals, but a shepherd is one who tends to these sheep involves caring for them, being with them, guiding them, looking out for them. Sheep are notoriously not very smart. They're always getting into trouble. They don't necessarily think for themselves too well. They just sort of walk and then they go and they get kind of they get going and they just go in that line and they just follow the next sheep in front of them. I saw a video online of some um, so-called UFO phenomenon, I think in China, of these sheep that had been walking in a circle for like a week or something. And there's no, nobody around. They're just there on their own, walking in a circle in a field. And they're like, oh, it must be aliens that are causing them to do that. Now, if you read um, a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, um, by a man named Philip Keller, no relation to Tim, um, this book is written by a man who was a shepherd. You read that book and you'll understand that it doesn't require aliens to get sheep to start doing a thing and to continue doing it because the one in front of them is doing it. So perhaps one sheep just decided to walk in a certain pattern and then the next one was like, yeah, I'm going to do that too. And so then you have these sheep that are just walking in a circle because they're all walking in a circle and that's, that's all there is to it. You've heard the expression, oh, you're a sheep, or don't be a sheep, or when you call people sheeple, because they're just going with the flow, they're going with the crowd. If your friend jumped off a cliff, would you do it too? Your mother might have said. That's the nature of sheep, is they just go with the crowd, they have a herd mentality, and they are often relatively unprepared to deal with danger. Sheep are not... Sheepdogs, they cannot fight against wolves. They're defenseless. They can tip over easily. They're top-heavy. 
When a sheep tips over, they cannot right themselves. They're, they're stuck with their legs flailing. And then the, the blood comes out of their, their legs. They lose the circulation in their legs. And then their good is dead. They're just sitting there waiting to be eaten by a wolf or a bear or a lion or anything like that. So a sheep needs a shepherd to watch over them and to notice when they go missing, to notice when they're straying, to notice when they're about to walk off the cliff because they're not that smart. That's the metaphor that is used repeatedly by God to describe us, his people. Think of Psalm 23, think of John 10. So a shepherd, a shepherd's job is to look after and care for the sheep. This involves primarily feeding them. Because a sheep might just stand there like, just standing there making sheep sounds. And like, I don't see anything to eat here. And the food might be 10 feet away. So you have to actually help them get the hang of things because they're relatively inept. The task of pastoring, the task of shepherding involves teaching, feeding the flock, guarding the flock, exercising oversight, watching out for wolves, protecting. There's so much that could be said just on this one point. It could be a hundred books. And there are hundreds of books on pastoring and shepherding. The task of elders is defined by the definition of the three terms, elder, overseer, shepherd. Next, let's consider the qualifications for elders. These qualifications are primarily concerned with character, much less concerned with gifting, with the exception being that an elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, a pastor must be able to teach. But beyond that, beyond that one Exception, everything else about the pastor, it's been said many times, the remarkable thing about the qualifications for a pastor is that they are unremarkable. There's nothing remarkable about these, these, this description. Just an ordinary, godly man. The first thing under this point two, the qualifications for elder, is the home life of the elder. It says in verse 6, if a man is blameless, the ESV says above reproach. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. This word blameless does not refer to a perfect man, for there are no perfect men, but rather refers to a good man. You look at him and you see someone with sound character. You see someone who is trustworthy, reliable, a man of integrity, a man of his word, without massive, major, noticeable character flaws. When accusations are made, they don't stick because you say, no, I know, I know him. He wouldn't do that sort of thing. The thing you're accusing him of, that's, that's crazy. No way. Some have wrongly interpreted this idea of being blameless to mean that no one would ever blame him for anything. That if an accusation is ever made about someone, then they are therefore not blameless because look, he got blamed. That is very, very poor hermeneutics, very poor theology. To say that someone is unqualified simply because of the fact that they were accused, that's some like 2022 sort of stuff. That's like something they would make up like in our culture. You don't just accuse someone and then say, oh, well, since he was accused, he must be guilty and we're going to go ahead and, and execute this man. No, that would be a great abandonment of justice. And this text says an elder must be just. That's one of the qualifications listed right in this paragraph. By this standard, our Lord Jesus was unqualified to be our savior. The standard that says, if you are accused, you are unqualified. No, Jesus was accused of lots of things that he did not do. The church is not to be a place where isolated and unsubstantiated accusations are entertained as valid. 1 Timothy 5.19 teaches us that we're not to even receive an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. 
This provides protection against a rogue member who is on a path of destruction from sowing chaos into the life of the church by making accusations machine gun style. You know, like, like I'm just going to take everybody out. No, you, we don't even entertain that. You say, sit down, young man, that's out of order. It also protects the pastors, the elders, from the anonymous letter. Hey, I'm going to write a complaint, but I'm not going to sign my name. Pastor, if you get a letter like that, don't even open it. Just throw, No, actually, it might be a card with like money in it or something. Um, it might be a thank you card. But if you get a complaining letter that's just ripping into you and criticizing you, but they didn't have the courage to sign their name on it, you just throw it away. That's what every pastor with his salt does. They don't entertain anonymous complaints because that's an unbiblical complaint. It's not in submission to 1 Timothy 5.19. But what is an elder to be? An elder is to be a man of God. His life is honorable. He's wise. He's strong, but not a jerk. He knows the word but he's not arrogant. This term blameless is used two times right here in this text to emphasize its importance. It also functions like a heading in this verse, in verse six. If a man is blameless, and then he goes on to list what he means by that. Titus, when you organize these churches, You're looking for men who are blameless. You're looking for men who are above reproach. And here's what that looks like. That's what he's doing. That's what Paul is doing in his writing to Titus. So that brings us to the next subpoint, which is number one, the husband of one wife. Again, keeping it simple, stupid. This is the husband of one wife, not a polygamist. This word literally reads as a one woman man. Now the question often comes up, not so much for me today as it did a few years ago, but can a single man be a pastor? The people who are usually asking that question are the kind of people who write the anonymous letters too. (laughs) The question is really, can a single man be a one-woman man? And I think that that's ultimately a question for a local church to decide. But I do believe that it is possible because this list refers to general character, the type of person you're looking at, the type of man. Church history tells us that Christians throughout the ages have answered that question with a clear and unwavering answer, yes, it is permissible to have a single pastor. By single pastor, I'm referring to marital status, not solo pastor. That's a different topic. Solo pastors are also common throughout history. But a single pastor, you have Charles Spurgeon, started his ministry single, and a few years later married one of the women in his church. Robert Murray McShane was single until death. Now, he died at age 29. In, in uh, London, there was a pastor named John Stott who was single for his entire life. There's a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church on Long Island who is single, and he's probably 40. Paul was single during his apostleship, presumably a widower. Timothy seemed to have been single. Even our Lord Jesus was single, though betrothed to his bride, the church, waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So why then does the text say the husband of one wife? Well, that is because marriage is a human norm. And it is also the first and most obvious testing ground for a man's character. The Bible presents singleness, though, as more than simply a necessary evil, but actually a good thing that is good for those who are so gifted and called. The people that are able to serve God with an undivided devotion, Paul describes very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32 and following. So the first thing is that this is a one-woman man, a husband of one wife. It might also raise the question, can a divorced man be an elder? Can a divorced man who got divorced after he became a Christian be an elder? This is a subject of much contention. But I will say this, the Lord restored Peter after his denial. The Lord can restore who he wants to restore. What about other scandals? What about other sorts of improprieties? A rule of thumb that is often used is that a fallen pastor's repentance should be as notorious as his sin. It should be as widely known that he has returned to the Lord. 
than that he strayed. I personally, just speaking as, as Andy right now, I am not a fan personally of throwing fallen pastors into the wood chipper. That's not something that I think is appropriate. Unless, of course, it's the kind of pastor who is recorded trying to hire a hitman to kill his son-in-law. That's a thing, but I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> Chicago. Um, generally speaking, I don't believe in permanent disqualifications for ministry, generally speaking. Okay? I would even say this, that the man who split my previous church could one day be restored. He could be converted. He could come to his senses. He could make restitution for all the destruction that he caused, restore the money that was fraudulently frauded. But I fear that the widespread attitude of permanent defrocking or disqualification, debarring of men from ministry, is unbiblical, I believe, for a few reasons. The first and most obvious reason that comes to my mind is that it gives the illusion that the unfallen pastor is more holy than they actually are. One of my friends said, I'm nothing but a wretched sinner saved by grace, sovereign grace. So the idea that the pastors who haven't fallen, they've been in ministry for 30 or 40 years, are some super saint, is nonsense. If you stick in one church for long enough, you will see that your pastor, no matter what church it is, has feet of clay as well. And is not actually blameless. No, there's lots of things you could blame him for, accuse him of. And there are even things that are true about him that, you know, he's kind of grumpy sometimes. I sat across the table from a pastor who has been close personal friends with one of the godliest and most famous pastors in the country for decades, and he said, he used his name, but I'll just use the word him, I know him. He's my friend, but he has warts just like the rest of us. He is not a holy man. He is a sinner who needs a savior like everybody else. I was shocked when I heard this person say that. Just think of like the godliest pastor in America, write his name down and then say, John Smith is not a holy man by someone who's been his friend for 50 years. There is no righteous man. No, not one. There was one, but we killed him. But there are saved men who are being gradually delivered from the power and presence of sin in their lives. There are men who are truly indwelt by the Spirit of God and have been called by God into a particular task, the task of shepherding the people of God. And yes, they must not be living in open rebellion against God. They should be pursuing Christ. They should be a man that you look at and you see, that's a good man. But don't be, don't be caught off guard when, when you find out after about a year or two that that man is a sinner just like you. The second, oh, that's the question of a divorced man. I didn't give you a straight answer, but I believe that divorced men can be restored to ministry. Another pastor who you all, probably 60% of you have heard of, listened to, read his books, is a divorced man. Most people don't know the guy's in reform circles. He's a very well-known, prominent conference speaker who writes a ton of books and is a president of his own seminary and all that stuff. He was divorced when he was in his 20s or early 30s. Now he's in his 60s or 70s, been married to his second wife for some 30 years. Most people would have no idea. But building healthy marriages is a huge part of his ministry. Why? Because he went through a broken one. You wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know that that man had that in his background. That leads us into point two. Point two is having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For those of you who are returning and have been with us previously, you might notice like, wait, this isn't the ESV Andy's reading from. Yeah, I'm using the New King James now. And the ESV in this text says, I believe very unfortunately, it says children are believers. I think that's a bad translation. It should say faithful. Why? 
Well, for one reason, besides the textual reasons, um, the theological reasons <laughs> that I would give is we are neither Arminians nor Paedo-Baptists here. You cannot force your child to become a Christian. You cannot force your children to believe in Jesus. While the Bible clearly teaches that parents are to bring their children up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, there does seem to be a law of diminishing returns at some point. Keep in mind, I'm a homeschool kid who did a lot of the things I'm about to read. So let's say you homeschool your kids. You send them to Christian summer camp. You take them on mission trips. You make sure that they only read Christian books and they only listen to Christian music. They only hang out with Christian friends. You send them to Christian Bible college. Make them do ministry jobs during the summer. You're not working at McDonald's. You're going to go work at some Christian nonprofit. Then they work for Christian ministries as their jobs. Maybe even have them write their first book as a child prodigy super Christian. Think of Joshua Harris. The man was barely out of his teens when he wrote his first book. That list I just described to you, those steps is literally the formula for so many apostates. You can do everything Christian, but you can't save your kids. What can you do, though, as a Christian family? You can bring up your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. You can love them, and you can live a life of integrity in the home. You see, children can spot a phony. This is the... the, driving reason why there's so many pastor's kids that are apostate. Because their parents made them do all the stuff, but they saw the home life and they saw that the, the way their parents treated each other. They saw their dad cursing at them and cursing at their mom, but then in the church or in the pulpit acting like super Christian. And the first chance they got, as soon as they, they were forced to go to Bible college, so they went to Bible college, but then they started their own life as quickly as they were able to. Children can spot a phony, they can spot a fraud. But many a child has trusted Christ and remained in the faith as a result of seeing their parents' faithful Christian witness, their mother's prayers, their father's humble leadership. Not that their parents were perfect, but that their parents were genuine. They could see their parents' relentless trust in God and desire to obey him in their own lives. And though the children see that their parents are not perfect, they respect them and they believe in the God of their fathers. If a man's children are a terror in the community, if they are starting blogs and podcasts and TikTok channels dedicated to attacking Christianity, you need to reconsider that man's qualifications for the ministry. There are many famous men in Christian history whose children became as famous as them for their hatred of Christianity. And that has caused great harm to their father's witness and I believe has shown that their fathers were actually not qualified for ministry even though they could preach or teach or write. I have several examples in mind right now. I'm I'm sure most of you have heard of them. But you can just... Write them down on your own. If a man cannot care for his own house, how can he care for the church of God? 1 Timothy 3.5. I do know one pastor. Out of, I've, I've known dozens, if not hundreds of pastors. I do know one pastor who resigned because his kid went off the rails. Most pastors say, when their children are young, they say, oh, well, they're just kids being kids. When they grow up, then they say, well, they're responsible for their own actions. It's easy for me to say this with my child being 10 weeks old. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I did grow up in a pastor's home, and both my grandfathers are pastors, and all my uncles are pastors or missionaries. So I do have a level of knowing some of what this looks like. So the first point is the, pers- uh, the, the home life of the pastor. Secondly, the personal character of an elder. Verse 7 says, a bishop must be blameless. He's repeating that a second time. Blameless as a steward of God. What is a steward? It's like a waiter. It's a person who looks after a house. It's a personal assistant who keeps the affairs of their boss. A bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed. A bunch of y'all know my friend Travis. 
Travis was a personal assistant to a billionaire. He moved away. He's not here anymore. But what is his job as a personal assistant to this rich guy? His job is to do what his boss tells him to do, not to make it up as he goes along. If his boss says, hey, I want you to check the mail every day. I want you to make sure that all the rest of my staff are doing what they're supposed to do. And I want you to make sure that all my bills get paid and all that. That's what he's supposed to do. He's not supposed to take the car on the joy rides without his boss's permission. He's supposed to do the things he's supposed to do. This first word under this, it says, is not self-willed. What is his will? His will is to do the will of his employer. A bishop, an elder, a shepherd's job is not to be self-willed, but to say, what is the will of God? That's what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what my agenda is. I don't have an agenda. My agenda is the will of God and God's agenda. We're not here to be creative or inventing some new type of church. Not self-willed. Secondly, not quick-tempered. This is such an unfortunate one where you're fearful of saying the wrong thing. You have to walk on eggshells around pastor so-and-so because you know, you ask him the wrong thing at the wrong time, he's going to come down on you. I knew a man who was a pastor who his last name was a synonym for getting screamed at for 10 minutes straight. It's not obviously not Mark, but let's use Mark as an illustration since he obviously is uh, very quick-tempered. Um, <laughs> now, so let's say his last name is Jorlet. So getting Jorlaid meant having this man scream at you for 10 minutes straight in front of everybody. That man was a pastor. With an div. He went to seminary. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Such a simple thing, but not quick-tempered. By the way, for those of you who don't know, Mark is one of the most patient men I know. <laughs> That's why I'm using him, because this is not, uh, not applying to him. A pastor must not be quick-tempered. Not able to be baited into exploding. But instead is thinking and, and, and not reacting, but acting. Making decisions not based on an impulse, but based on discernment and decisions. The next point is not given to wine. This, uh, other translations call it not a drunkard. Simple enough. Don't be a drunkard. doesn't mean a pastor can never drink, but it means he must not be given to wine. There is a clear difference between the two. The next one is not violent. I think others, King James or others might call, say not a brawler, not a fighter, not someone who's, who's this ties into the, the quick-tempered thing where you're just like, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to sock them. So like examine yourself when you're in front of Planned Parenthood and you've got people insulting you because you're pleading for the unborn. If your first response is, I'm going to deck this guy because he just said something mean about me. It should not be violent. Then the next one is not greedy for money. Did you know that there are some people who go into the ministry because they think they can make a lot of money? Which is, Mindy thinks this is a joke. I think this is a joke, but it's not a joke. They're, it's real. Like People actually think this way, and then they build their church around that. Like There's a famous pastor in North Carolina who said that um, he and his buddies went to this um, like rock concert, and they said, we want to make a church just like this like a stadium, an arena, thousands of people screaming, cheering, everything, and then there'll be a little sermon at the end. Today, his net worth is in the eight figures. Go figure. Not greedy for money. So the, the first list is a, th- a list of things that he's not, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. The next one is the things he ought to be, the, the positives, but he should be hospitable. The word hospitable, man, we are in trouble for time. Hospitable means, literally in the Greek, it means loving strangers. A pastor who will not have people into his home is not hospitable. That's not to say that's the only way to practice hospitality. You can, you can take someone out to eat. You can do lots of other things to show love for strangers. But just very simply put, a pastor is one who is hospitable and is one who loves people. It is a shame when a pastor says, I can't stand people. 
Not just that one guy, but I don't like people in general. That man should not be a pastor. He's not qualified, not gifted, not called. Not all necessity is your responsibility to fill. Just because a church is like, oh, we need someone to be our pastor, and and we know you hate people, but you could preach. No, don't hire that type of man. Uh, Next one is a lover of what is good. When there is good, you see that man inclined towards it. Well, why do you like that thing? Well, because it's good. This is such a bright, it's just a general term, but do you love what is good or do you love what is evil? Second, sober-minded. Sober-minded is the counter to um, being a drunkard, being given to wine. Serious-minded, sober-minded, in his right mind. The next point is just, not unjust, not corrupt. The next one is holy, set apart. The next word is self-controlled. Do you have the ability to guard your tongue, to, to keep things yourself primarily under control, to not be forced to react? but to actually have self-control. And the last, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. One of the important things that might be easy to overlook in this verse is, as he has been taught. A pastor is not... Self-taught. He has been taught by others. He has others who are around him, speaking into his life, teaching, instructing, recognizing, examining, affirming, saying, hey, you're called to this, or hey, you're not called to this. And so then this pastor is carrying on a legacy. This is the one good thing about the, um, the sort of the apostolic succession model, which I don't think is a good thing. But the one good thing about it is the idea of people laying hands on and passing down an inheritance. And that inheritance is supposed to be a godly inheritance of the truth of the gospel. And so this man teaches this man who teaches this man. And that that string goes on for 2,000 years. This is why we in non-Catholic, non-Episcopal, non-Apostolic churches, we practice ordination because in ordination, you have pastors who were ordained who come together to ordain the next pastor. So there is a line from me to John Calvin. I can't trace it, but one of my professors did. So it can be tracked. holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. There's a distinction between the qualifications and the the teaching ability that is necessary for an elder versus a deacon. The elder must be able to exhort and to convict those who contradict sound doctrine. He must know the truth and know error and be able to explain what's wrong with the error and what is truth. This requires a much stronger grasp of the truth and some level of ability in explaining it and speaking that a deacon doesn't need to have. We'll get into that in a second, but in uh, 1 Timothy 3, it says that the deacon must hold to the faith with a clear conscience. Believing it is different from being able to teach it. These are two different levels of, of grasp of the truth. Now, in conclusion of this point one on shepherds, point two will be much shorter. Point one, during my MDiv study several years ago, we read a book called Shepherds After My Own Heart by a guy named Laniac. That book considered the shepherd, the shepherd motif throughout the Bible. In reading the book, a quote stood out to me, which I only faintly remembered, so I went searching for it yesterday, and I found it on page 57. Quote, The wide range of activities involved in shepherding is determined by the daily and seasonal needs of the animals. Consequently, attentive and careful shepherds became endeared to their flocks, 
Responsible shepherds know every member of their flocks in terms of their birth circumstances, history of health, eating habits, and other idiosyncrasies. It is not uncommon to name each goat and sheep and to call them all by name. One of the most striking characteristics of the shepherd-sheep-shepherd-flock relationship is that control over the flock is exercised simply by the sound of the shepherd's voice or whistle. Only a special bond between animal and human can explain this responsiveness. All of these elements, the movement, the isolation, the variety, the adjustments, the demands, contributed to a knowledge base and a skill set that distinguished shepherds remarkably and as remarkably and broadly capable persons. They were known for independence, resourcefulness, adaptability, courage, and vigilance. Their profession cultivated a capacity for attentiveness, self-sacrifice, and compassion. Jacob was not exaggerating when he claimed, the heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and, the, and sleep fled from my eyes, Genesis 31.40. This occupation put shepherds in a constant state of negotiation with an unpredictable physical and social environment. For these and other reasons, the shepherd naturally became an icon of leadership. The author, Laniac, closes in this chapter with a quote from George Adam Smith about shepherds. Quote, On some high moor, across which at night hyenas howl, when you meet him, sleepless, far-sighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning on his staff, looking out over his scattered sheep, everyone on his heart, you understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front in people's history, why they gave his name to their king and made him a symbol of providence, why Christ took him as a type of self-sacrifice. Let us remember that ultimately, any shepherd is simply an under-shepherd under the good shepherd, that Jesus is the good shepherd, and Jesus gave his life for the sheep. So if you are a part of the fold of God, you're part of the body of Christ, you're one of God's people, it is because Jesus died for you. If you're not a believer here today and you're sitting here like, okay, what's all this stuff about church structure? I would encourage you not to worry about that and instead to consider, are you a sheep in the fold of God? Are you his sheep? Is he your shepherd? Because he died for his sheep. He literally laid down his life. He bled out and died to save you. This brings us to point two. Our second and final point. Servants, deacons. Qualifications for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. We will go much faster. We only have two or three pages of notes left. We've gone through seven. 1 Timothy 3.8 says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, but given to much, not, not given, not given to much wine, <laughs> not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience, but let those also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things, let deacons be the husbands, uh, husband of one wife, ruling their children in their, house, their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. We didn't mention it, but both the office of elder, shepherd, and deacon are offered or promised heavenly rewards. There are special rewards special crowns or trophies, as it were, for those who serve in unique ways in the local church. That's the subject for another sermon. Deacons are servants in the church. We described what pastors are based on the different words and the meaning of the words. Well, a deacon, the meaning of the word is simply a servant in the church. A pastor pastors. A pastor oversees, a pastor teaches, a pastor leads. What do deacons do? They deek. The office of pastor, elder, overseer is limited exclusively to qualified men. 
I believe that the office of deacon is limited to qualified men and women, according to 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, Acts 6, and Romans 16. Those are your key texts if you're taking notes. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, which we just read, speaks in verse 11. It says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. These wives that are spoken of may be wives of deacons, but they also more likely are just the women also. That's a literal reading of that. It's not referring to the wife of a husband. It's referring to women, but it has been translated as wives in most of our translations. So if you understand it in a more literal reading, likewise, the women also must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Romans 16 supports this, re- this view, this reading, because there's a woman there named Phoebe. Phoebe is described as a deaconess or a servant in the church in Centria. Shepherding is a preaching and teaching role. It requires a man be, be able to teach, to hold firmly to sound doctrine, so that he can not only teach sound doctrine, but refute those who contradict it, First Timothy says. Deacons is a service role. Deacons are described by one author as the shock absorbers of the church. They help make things run smoothly. Remember Acts chapter 6. You've got all these Hellenistic widows, the Greek-speaking widows who are not being cared for. They were sort of overlooked. And well, what did they do? Well, they had to appoint seven, seven men of godly character to oversee that food pantry. Some would say, oh, well, you see, they installed men because this office is reserved for men. I would say, no, they installed, they, they installed men because they were running a food pantry. And if you've ever run a food pantry, you know that it's better to have seven men carrying all these boxes of food than seven women. There are certain tasks that are more suitable to a man and certain tasks that are more suitable to a woman. If you're going to have someone who's, who's leading your um, you know, nursing home visitation, it might be better that it be a female. I don't know. It might be better to have a, a lady who's looking after the uh, hospitality and, and new mom's thing. Like There are certain tasks more suitable to men and certain tasks more suitable to women. They're described as shock absorbers in the church. They make things run smoothly. Their grasp of scripture, while still very important, doesn't necessarily require the ability to teach because that is not necessarily a part of their job, though it might be. You see Stephen in the book of Acts, who he's just installed as a deacon. He stands up and preaches, and then he gets killed. Deacons are also not pseudo-elders. Many churches function this way. They have a pastor as CEO and then deacons, and the deacons are the elders, and the deacons are the ones who either agree or disagree and provide the quote-unquote checks and balances, which just basically serve as roadblocks to make life difficult. Deacons, rather than being that, are servants of the church whose primary focus is looking after tangible physical needs, tasks, and projects. When the office of deacon becomes a pseudo-elder, the deacons become consumed with pastoring and shepherding. The deacons, if the deacons are, let's say, they're older men and they're not physically fit or free in their schedules, let's say they're 70, 80 years old, it happens a lot, they're very old and they're not physically able to care for physical needs, So, or let's say they're working and they're too busy in their schedules, so they can't help the widow with her flat tire or food shortage. So what happens? Well, the pastor is the one who has to pick up the slack. The pastor becomes the deacon. So then the deacon's meeting becomes the time where we discuss the well-being of the members, we pray for them, we shepherd them, and then the pastor, his life becomes filled with replacing broken water pipes, giving car rides to the elderly, cleaning the church facilities, scrubbing the toilets, serving food in the after-kids school program. None of these things are bad things. And a pastor certainly must be willing to do whatever is needed. Jesus made it clear that he was greatest among you should be servant of all. There's no task too demeaning for a pastor. The pastor should be willing, the most willing, to pick up his towel and wash the proverbial feet of the saints. But the deacons must stop that from happening. Where they should say, no, let us do that. You give yourself to the ministry of the word and prayer. Let us take care of these tasks. 
We, the deacons, will make sure that the church van has its oil changed at the proper time. We will make sure that Sister Irene's groceries are delivered. We'll handle the lights, the AC, unlocking, locking, piano tuning, bathroom remodeling. You just give the final approval. We don't want you to have to be tied up with the details of these things because your job is to be consumed with the ministry of the word and prayer. Deacons like that are worth their weight in gold. Now, by way of application, a church's growth is limited by a single pastor's ability to manage things combined with his unique gift set and what that gift set allows him to manage. Personally, I once longed to have an executive pastor on staff that could manage all the organizational and administrative tasks. Now, the Lord, in the way in which he's grown the church with more people than money necessarily, has seen fit to provide a small army of volunteers to run most of the logistics for these types of administrative tasks in our church. Now, the need in our church is not necessarily uh, an executive pastor, but leadership development through men's ministry. This requires training. It is for this reason that I went with John Benzinger to Southern California two weeks ago for a behind-the-scenes look at the men's ministry at Faith Bible Church of Marietta, California. They call their men's ministry the Training Center. This Training Center is a program that trains men for ministry. Not exclusively pastors, not exclusively preachers, but also deacons, counselors, small group leaders. Their goal is just to help you be all that God has made you to be to figure out what your giftings are and empower that and and speed that along so that you're able to serve the Lord more strongly however he has designed you. The program is literally a school. Year one lays a strong foundation of Bible and theology. We see how important that is in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. These men leading in the church need to know the word of God and they need to know sound doctrine so that they can Identify false doctrine and teach correct doctrine, whether that's as a pastor or a small group leader, because all kinds of heresies are born in small groups. Then years two and three build on that foundation. Year two looks like this. It is an introduction to preaching and teaching. So year one is, hey, let's just know the Bible, the entire Bible. Like memorize the chapter content of the entire Bible. So uh, what does Deuteronomy 6 say? What is... And in the class, they literally call on the people, and because they've memorized this content, they know their chapter, chapter content. And so the end of that year, they know the book. But it's not just intellectual, it's understanding how to apply it. And they would say, well, what chapter would you take someone to when they're struggling with this issue or this question? What book of the Bible would you bring them to when they're struggling with assurance of salvation? Those types of questions. And the men in this this class, they know the answer because they've been studying it. They've been learning it. Year two is an introduction to preaching and teaching, how to prepare and deliver Bible messages, how to use uh, and how to, expositional Greek, like how to use Greek tools and Bible software, uh, exegesis, study, expositional theology, discernment in reading and leading, like how do you look at a library with thousands of theological books and know what is sound and what is not sound? When you're going through a commentary and you're like, oh, actually, that's not good. I think I'm just going to stop using this commentary because the author's a heretic and I just realized it from that line right there. How can you discern those types of things? Counseling, pastoral care, eldership, shepherding, training men for leadership, purpose, calling, weddings, funerals, finances, and more. That's all year two. And then there's year three. Year two is sort of this broad overview. Year three is focused on as a leader, setting your direction, your philosophy of ministry, how to lead change, how to send and be sent, how to improve in your preaching, teaching, and exegesis, and then specifically that student's unique purpose in God's work for God's glory. Each believer is to be actively engaged in the mission of God on the earth. That doesn't mean each person must be a pastor, but each person has been given, each Christian has been given spiritual gifts and they are to use those for God's glory in the local church. Men who go through this program, they've had some 100 plus graduates go through their program, passing the classes, graduate, they come out on the other side, what I've called, they're sort of like Navy SEALs for the church. This man, Chris Mueller, built the program. He's one of the men who helped, who worked with John MacArthur 40 years ago and helped build Grace Community Church. So, while I was out there, um, 
I had done my homework before I got there because they, they were like, hey, they're going to ask you some questions. And if you answer yes, then you get a green light. If you answer no, then you get a red light. So I did all the reading and the homework and stuff before I got there. And when I arrived, they said, so did you? And I said, yes. And they said, okay, we'll set up an account for your church. So Lord willing, by God's grace, we will be launching, you can go to the third slide, the PBC Training Center in August. And we have the application here is almost ready. It still needs a few more tweaks. But for men who would desire to be further trained, further equipped, we have a program. We have a three-year course of study that is not, it's not just academic. The primary learning, the primary reading is on your own time. You do homework outside and then you come together for class in a Socratic method of discussing the stuff that you did on your own time. So it's very, very interactive. It's not a dry lecture whatsoever. Um, so we have the application is almost ready to go. Um, you will be surprised when you go through it. It's like 10 or 15 pages long. Um, they set the bar high. And um, I think that that's a good thing. So hopefully this week I'll have the final tweaks changed on this because we have to go through the document and change all the names where it says like Chris Mueller and Nigel this guy and John so-and-so like none of those guys are here so there's still a little bit more editing that needs to be done on the application but then it will be complete Uh, my desire is that all of the older men in the church go through the program we'll be very very accommodating to make that happen as far as like finding the best time Um, and then beyond that any men who desire this type of training would love to have you in the program. Um, in particular, I would like to have the older men go through the program in year one so that they can help with year two because it's, it's sort of like membership class where it just repeats in cycle. Uh, it goes on and on. So um, that is the men's ministry announcement. Um, again, not just for elders, not just for people who want to be pastors or teachers or preachers but men who want to be equipped to be a better small group leader, to be a better servant in the church. Um, You do need to be a member of the church, and there is um, an event that's part of the program that I want to to go to with the men who are approved to do the program, and that event will be in the end of May. So we have a deadline for the application, which would be before May. Um, The pastor that John Benzinger hired to oversee this program at his church is also a classmate from the doctoral program at Master's Seminary, and I asked him, my friend Todd, I said, Todd, would you help me with our program too? Because I'm a little shorthanded on this. And he said, yes, I'd be happy to help with your program too. So um, Todd and I will be going through applications and discussing them and There are many questions on the application that you might answer no to, but you still might be approved. So just answer honestly when you do get the application, assuming that you do. So that's my message on elders and deacons. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll we'll sing the last two songs. Father in heaven, thank you for this this teaching that you've given to us in your word, that the local church is not to be a wild west free-for-all. It is not to be the book of Judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, but that you actually instruct us in the Bible how to set up your church, how to lead, how to teach, what is to be a pastor, what is a deacon supposed to be. You, You tell us these things. So Lord, we thank you that we're not here to just make things up as we go along, but rather to read in your word what you have said and to seek to teach that and to apply that faithfully. But I thank you that Jesus was the good shepherd and that Jesus is the suffering servant. We are not sent out to do these things in our own strength, but we are to follow in the path that you have given to us, trusting completely in you and the strength and the grace which you supply. Lord, I pray that you would use this simple message to strengthen your people, to strengthen your church, to build PBC that it would one day be a mighty church for the sake of your kingdom, for spreading your gospel, that that in New York City there would be a bright lighthouse that is firm, is established, that has deep roots, deep foundations, 
Lord, I pray that you would use this message as the beginning of something wonderful to come. Lord, I pray that you would be with us and help us as we seek to obey the instruction that you gave through Paul to Timothy to train faithful men for ministry. Lord, I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.